Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokushikai Inside Look podcast. This episode is brought to you by our amazing patrons over at Patreon, who have generously donated as little as a cup of coffee to as much as the cost of a bowl of ramen per month. You can find episode videos for these interviews as well as deeper dives into other subject matters at patreon.com forward slash Tokushikai Canada. If you are enjoying this work, please consider supporting us. My name is Juan Diego Fonseca. I am from Ecuador in South America. Um, I currently work as a chemical engineering teacher in uh, San Francisco de Quito University. Uh, and also, uh, we can maybe talk a little bit more about that later, but um, besides chemical engineering, I also uh, give other classes, such as Japanese language classes and a Socratic course, which is called self-knowledge, which is also uh, quite an interesting class that every student that enters this university has to take. Uh, and it's about Eastern philosophy. So it's kind of an, an interesting curriculum for them to take. Besides that, I'm currently um, focusing my practice in Kyudo. I practice Kyudo uh, since 2010, when I went to Japan to study my uh, graduate studies. Uh, and I uh, lately have been in a little bit of a pause, but I also am a long time uh, Kendo practitioner, about uh, maybe 16 years of kendo practice, but lately I have been uh, working harder or focusing in kudo over kendo, really. Okay, so you 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 grew up in Ecuador, and that's yeah. yeah. So what was the circumstances around that? Like, I, I I think that a lot of people listening to this podcast are from all over the world. It'd be just a good glimpse into what life is like, what growing up as a child in your country is like. Right. So in Ecuador, well, uh, when, when I was a kid, I moved to several places, um, especially in Venezuela. I spent a long time with my, in my childhood around, uh, I believe, more than six years in Venezuela. Uh, and actually, you know, uh, I always had to travel a little bit, even though I was uh, always in Ecuador. I, I usually uh, traveled to Venezuela and also to Curacao in the Caribbean. Uh, and the reason is because my family is it's kind of a very mixed, really. Um, like my heritage from my dad and from my mother are very separate uh, and I happened to happen in Ecuador I could say uh, so for example my, my dad comes from is a mixture between Lebanese and Dutch but uh, with a relationship to the Caribbean in Curacao while my mother is a mixture between England and Ecuadorian you know so uh, yeah it's it, it was a little bit uh, strange for me growing up in Ecuador because I was always a little bit different from, from most of the people, what you would think Ecuadorians look like. So yeah, it, it was always a little bit, um, uh, I always felt a little bit like a, like a foreigner even in Ecuador. So that probably has some, oh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're exploring Japanese culture and, and this other, other things. Um, when did that begin? Was it because you had this already difference in interests in terms of your upbringing? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't very um, interested in the typical Ecuadorian things, which would be soccer, basically. Um, and, and the cultural background in Ecuador, even, even when I was a kid, never really interested me. So I was always doing uh, a little bit uh, strange things. And my source of strange things was Japan, you know. So uh, since I was a kid, I was very interested in, in video games, especially. I was a very, very... Uh, how would you say, very zealous <laughs> um, gamer when I was a kid. Uh, and also I really liked origami. So I've been, been practicing since 
for a very long time. Uh, and especially, I think that one of my, my very first interests in Japan per se uh, was because of video games. And the reason was because in Ecuador, you know, uh, in, when I was a kid, it was very hard to get such things as video games. So you had to get them from the black market. And many from the games I had to go get when I was a kid, you know, this is a, a eight, nine year old doing this, you know, going, taking a bus and going to the black market to buy games. And many of them were Japanese games, you know, the, the ones that are like short that you had to put an adapter to play. Uh, and the thing is that these games were in Japanese. So uh, I started a little bit kind of my interest in, in Japan and in Japanese language, trying to figure out how to read what was written in the screen. So for example, I would know the character names and then I would see how, what lines were written and little by little, I tried to kind of teach myself uh, hiragana and katakana through video games. So I think that that was the beginning of, of a very long uh, lifetime romance with, with Japan and Japanese culture. Oh, wow. Well, so we, we had this exploration, this interest in the other culture. Uh, the other side of doing something like a Buddha art is a lot of discipline. Did you see that coming before? Like, was that in your personality or in your interest before you started practice or did it come as a result? Well, I think that um, I did have a, an increasing interest in discipline. And I think that maybe one of the reasons for this is that when I was a kid, I was very overweight and it, was, it took a lot of effort for me to, to get over that phase. Uh, you know, when I came to Ecuador after some years of living in Venezuela and coming back, uh, it was a little bit of a shock for me. The food in Ecuador is very tasty and very, you know, a lot of potatoes and cheese and corn and stuff that makes you fat. So, um, you know, I, I, I was overweight and that lasted for a few years until, you know, it started uh, having some implications in my personal life. So I decided like, you know, this has to change. So then I started uh, looking for a good training uh, regime. And one of the things that I started doing was uh, practicing yoga and also a little bit of Taekwondo, which was the martial art that was kind of available to me at that time. Uh, and that was like the beginning of, of, of me starting a discipline. Uh, then I continued to practice Taekwondo for, for a couple of years until I got into the university. And in the university, I took up fencing. Uh, and I was really into fencing, I really enjoyed it. Uh, but then, thanks to fencing, is that I found Kendo. You know, it's a little bit an anecdote is that uh, my fencing teacher, he was like, oh, you know, there's uh, also this Japanese fencing club that they're going to start in the university. And how about you go and check it out? And well, that teacher could not foresee it, but that was the very last day I practiced fencing. Actually, I never again, after the day I saw Kendo, even grabbed. Uh, an epe, never again. And from the next week, I joined Kendo. I never, I never stopped. So Kendo, uh, you said it's something that you still kind of dabble in, but now your main art is Kudo. So maybe you can walk us through how that discovery. Um, I, I know that you've started practicing in Japan, but you already had that interest in, in pursuing it before. So mm -hmm. I, how would you even know that something like that exists? Right. So when I started practicing Kendo, uh, you know, one of the things that I really love about Kendo that I have, uh, even appreciate more as time passed is this ability for you to practice in several dojo without uh, rivalry or without, well, I, I think it's not the same in all the places, but at least in Ecuador is a very, very healthy dojo atmosphere regarding Kendo. So uh, when, when I started practicing Kendo in the university, I 
also started practicing everywhere where I could. Uh, and I met many different teachers. And um, the thing is that uh, during these uh, interactions with many different teachers, sometimes we will have conversations about the deeper sides of Budo and of the practice. And Kudo would always come up, you know, in conversations, you know, like we've heard this, uh, you know, that Kudo is very spiritual, very deep kind of thing. And it was always, I think for all Ecuadorians, it was very, uh, like a very mysterious uh, and distant Budo. So I had my aim uh, to that. You know, I practiced for, for a few years, maybe five or six years in my university, uh, Kendo. And then when I decided to, to go to Japan, I applied for a scholarship and got it. And then um, I was thinking like what to do. And of course I was gonna continue to practice Kendo. But also uh, I had this possibility to start practicing something that was almost impossible to practice in Ecuador, you know? So I think it was out of just sheer curiosity, uh, but a little bit more precisely, like a very um, a specific chapter, I would say that I remember as, as one of my first, of the first times I heard about Kyudo was uh, with the president of the Kendo uh, Association in Ecuador. And he had read the Herigel books and he started talking to me about it. And, and actually he lent me a copy in Spanish and I read it. Uh, and that time, you know, it was actually one of those things that changed your life completely, but it's very random because um, when I started, I, I read this book and I thought it was really cool. Um, you know, my opinion about this book has changed a lot throughout the years, you know, but at the time I thought it was really cool. And it was so cool actually that when I applied for scholarship to go to Japan, I chose uh, Sendai, Tohoku University, because of the relation we had to, to this. So I said, okay, it's a great university for what I have to study. And there's also this link with uh, Kyudo. And if I'm gonna, you know, uh, go all out and, and study Kyudo, why not I go to Sendai? And that was, a, uh, I would say that that decision was not the best decision Kyudo-wise, but it was a great decision in terms of my life. And why I say this is because uh, I expected uh, there to be a very strong Kyudo in Sendai, uh, but really it was not so. So actually like, I think that um, there could have been better places for me to start Kyudo practice that would have been richer maybe, uh, but definitely now that I see it, uh, like I see it today, I am very, very happy that I actually chose Sendai because I think that it was the, a great environment for me to then develop it a little bit of my ideas. I think that if I had gone to another place, um, uh, how can I say? I think, I think that Sendai gave me some freedom, you know, to to practice in the community, but also a lot of self practice that is required. That maybe in other places where the community and the kudos is stronger, um, you know, you don't have this opportunity to develop by yourself. You know, it's, it's only community based and little bit and very little self practice. So I think that actually Sendai allowed that for me to to happen. So before we get into your practice and what you've discovered in Sendai, I'm I'm always interested in hearing how people talk about finding and taking advantage of an opportunity to go to Japan because I think a lot of people have that interest. And sure, there's luck involved in terms of an opportunity coming, but there's also a lot of work in terms of being aware of what's available and applying and making sure that you can get. Could you talk a little bit about the details of 
finding this opportunity to get the scholarship and then what it took to apply and get accepted? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, the Mombucho, Mombuka Kusho or Next Scholarship is, uh, is like an embassy endorsed uh, scholarship that you apply to the of, of the country. Well, this works differently in, different, in, in several countries, but at least in Ecuador, it works by uh, a recommendation through the Japanese embassy. And it's a really great scholarship. Uh, we have every year, uh, maybe two or three people that can be chosen for uh, their maybe master's or doctor's study in Japan in any university. Uh, so it's a great opportunity. I found out in just, oh, you know, open the, the newspaper one morning and it was, okay, you want to apply for a scholarship in Japan. These are the requirements. And so I did. Uh, but actually, you know, by that time, I had already been studying Japanese for a few years. I had also been very, um, I had been practicing kendo for some time, doing origami, like, like my interest in Japan was already uh, a little bit developed by the time I, I found out about this scholarship. So um, when I found out about this scholarship, I was working as an engineer. I had not graduated from high school, uh, from the university, sorry, because my thesis was still not finished. But I had done all my courses, so I started working as a, as a process engineer. So uh, I think that it was very lucky for me, really. Um, but, you know, I, I, I really think that um, it was a matter of me opening the newspaper that morning or not. So I think that for that not to be the case for more people, uh, I made one of my, I would say, main activities is I came back uh, the promotion of, of, of this opportunity in Japan in Ecuador. So I work uh, very closely with the Japanese embassy now, uh, endorsing the program, you know, trying to make it uh, be known for the more uh, most people and also advise on how to apply, how to be a good applicant, uh, what kind of, how to, how to fill in the documents and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. I think that for me it was a chance, but what I would really like to do is that for the next generation, it's not going to be a matter of chance, but you know, more of choice. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's it's surprising how many of those type of stories where it's some kind of serendipity that happens that allows you to to find these things. Uh, so talk about your your stay there. How long were you there? Did you were you feeling like you were adept, like just um, dove right into living as any other person would live in Japan? Was there any culture shock involved? Like, what was your time like while you were in Japan? Right. So um, I, I joined the, the scholarship thinking about completing a doctor's degree. Uh, in Japan, that's about three years, plus two years for the master's, plus have a year that is uh, made for research and, you know, getting ready for the entrance examination and all that stuff. Plus, uh, I, I stayed in Japan a little bit longer. Uh, you know, I already had, I was, when, before coming back to Japan, I was already kind of deciding, uh, you know, to get married, coming back to Ecuador with my, with my girlfriend at the time, a Japanese a girlfriend at the time. Now she's my wife. She's living here in Ecuador. She's a Japanese teacher, actually. So uh, all in all, I stayed around six years in Japan. And I think that it was... Um, I would say that it was a very normal uh, in, 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 uh, stay, you know, like, but I think that the, the, the way I used my time was definitely uh, disproportionately aimed to Budo, you know, like I spent uh, maybe six hours in the, 
in the university, like doing my research and stuff. But for every hour I spent in the in the in the research, I think I spent at least two in in the dojo. So I think that in that sense it was it was a little bit different. Like the amount of time I spent studying and doing budo was a little bit disproportionate towards the budo side. And um, another thing I think that was a little bit different is that. Um, you know, for the first six months, and this was a great decision, you know, if somebody is planning to go to Japan, I recommend you do something like this. Uh, when you just get to Japan, what is normal is that you come together with a group of other international students and you make this group and you never leave, you know, you're always traveling together, moving together. Uh, and what I did, I had kind of made this strategy and it worked very well. Uh, I didn't want that to happen for me to be distracted uh, with the other foreign, with my other foreign friends in Japan. So for the first three, four or five uh, months, I was basically alone. You know, I uh, I tried not to talk in English. I tried to, you know, if, if I wanted to go somewhere, go alone. And if I get lost, ask for the directions. So my strategy was to be completely independent as much as possible from, from non-Japanese community for the first six months. And that was very good. At the beginning, you know, my, my, my fellow uh, scholarship, international scholarship students thought I was a little bit crazy, you know, because he's always alone, kind of weird. But during this time, I was able to really submerge in, in the Japanese, living in Japan and, and talking in Japanese and asking for directions and, and doing all the uh, procedures to, to get the phone and the bills, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and then when I finally took the decision to join the international community, uh, I was able to help them because, you know, I had made progress in Japanese that they had not been able to do. Uh, so then I was, I was, a, a, uh, you know, it was, it was better for me to get very established in Japan before I opened up to the other international community. And this way I was also more helpful for them. So I think that that was a little bit uh, different in my case. And Howard, you, you, so you had these foreign friends that are at the university um, and then going out, like if you were just checking out the town and all that stuff, most of the people are Japanese. What about at the, the dojo? Like what kind of environment was it like? Um, and did you have any, like, were there any interesting stories from that period of time? Right. So one of the things in Sendai is that it's a very small city compared to Tokyo. And one of the, the, the things that this means is that there are not too many foreigners in, in Sendai. Although I would say that Sendai is in great part Tohoku University. And of course in Tohoku University, there are many international students, but most people that are not related to the university, you know, it's not very common from, from people there to, to interact with foreigners. So it happened to me in Sendai many times that I was the first foreigner that made me baby saw, you know? So it was kind of, I caused that shock to many babies. <laughs> and in general, uh, there, are there were certain places where there were not many foreigners. I think that even in comparison to other places in Japan, it was, uh, you know, very few. And one of these places was Kyudo, you know, in the Kyudojo and, and the Kendojo. And if there were other foreigners, they were uh, most of the times in the same situation as me. Like they were very close friends of mine or they came to Japan at the same time with me or something like that. So um, my practice in the dojo was also, you know, especially for Kyudo, it was very uh, only with Japanese people, in, uh, say for, for a couple of, of international friends. 
that there were. Um, but for example, the first time I went to the dojo, I it was, you know, I just searched where the closest dojo was to my university dorm, uh, look for the schedule, and then just show up and literally like, you know, knock the door, excuse me, no, I want to practice judo, but what, what, where should I start? Please help me. It was literally like that. Um, and yeah, I, I do have an interesting story uh, about the first time I went to the dojo. You know, so I stepped in, into the dojo, which is a municipal dojo, so it's not kind of very traditional, but more of a modern building dojo. Um, and I, as I tell you, I, I enter like very carefully, like, I'm sorry, you know, I want to learn, but I don't know where to start. Can somebody help me? And somebody crossed the corridor, you know, and a man maybe in his 50s with Nakimono, he looked at me and ignored me completely. You know, then, and then I was like, again, sorry, is there somebody here? Um, you know, and then he, he turned out again his head, looked at me and went back into the room. I was like, okay, what's, what's wrong with this guy? Uh, and I kept him calling until somebody came and, and then the, the sensei came and he told me, oh yeah, welcome I'm here. And he started guiding me and he started talking, you know, like showing me the equipment and stuff. And all of the time, this, old, this, this man with the kimono was always kind of checking me out, but you know, kind of with a, with a, with a weird face, you know, like looking at me like very suspiciously. And it was a very strange sensation until uh, about a, an hour and a half later, there was a tea time, you know, many times in, in Kyudo practice in Japan, in Japan, they make a little break for people to talk. And uh, finally, this mysterious man talked, you know, and, and, and he changed his face completely from this expression of, you know, you're weird, you're not welcome. He became very friendly and started speaking Spanish. You know, he started saying like, uh, hey, how are you, amigo? And he introduced himself and, and he said, you know, I've been to your country, I know Ecuador. And, and then to my surprise, at that moment, there were like him, the sensei, and like three or four more people practicing, like younger people. And then he said, well, I'm Mr. Camito. And this is my, my two daughters and my son. So, you know, it was the entire Camito family was there in the dojo. And uh, what happened, you know, to make this long story very short is that I was basically adopted by Camito-san and his family all the time when I was in Japan. Um, he invited me to his house, you know, with, that was a, the place where I, uh, I felt like, like I was in a family, really. Uh, I celebrated birthdays, holidays, um, everything I did together with them. So they actually took me almost like an adopted son, I would say. And this was very important for my Kyudo practice because Kamito-san, during all my stay in Japan, he always uh, made sure that I knew what was going on in the Kyudo community. He always drove me every single time to practice. Um, and that was great because he practiced almost every day. So that also meant that if I had time available, I could also go to practice with him almost every day if I wanted to. So yeah, that was, I made this uh, connection the very first time I entered the, the dojo in Sendai. And it was like one of the most important people in my life and certainly the most important person in my Kyudo. Yeah, and like of all the places that he could have been worldwide, <laughs> he came from where you came from. It's yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. And, and you know, Kamito Sain is like a very uh, unusual Japanese person because he's at the same time extremely Japanese and at the same time extremely non-Japanese. So 
he's extremely Japanese in the sense that his family is very traditional, you know, like he's the man of the house and he's always wearing a kimono. Uh, when he's in practice, always kimono, but also when he comes back to his house, he always gets in yukata, you know, very traditional in this kind of way. Um, he follows, you know, like the almanac and the agricultural almanac, traditional almanacs and stuff like this. So very, very traditional. But in the other hand, Kamito-san was a backpacker for many years, you know, and he survived uh, as a backpacker, like for 15 years traveling all over the world. So that also makes, makes him a very, uh, you know, most very Japanese people have never left Japan, but he was both very Japanese and very international at the same time. So you're going to be like uh, celebrating a very traditional thing in a family setting, but listening to uh, Bob Marley, for example. So it was this contrast that was very interesting to find in him. Yeah, and that would have totally broken all expectations for what you had when you said, oh, I'm just going to go to Japan and learn Kido, and then you get adopted by this family. Uh, what, was there other points? Like, I know you uh, read the Harrigal book. That would have There would have been a huge change from what you thought that was and what else. Maybe you can talk about as you were practicing more, what are some of the things that you learned and you came to realize when you were practicing these arts in Japan? Right. So, for example, one of the one of my things that uh, I appreciated that book a lot because it told me about cues and you know all this um, possibility of a very interesting dimension of practice that I think that it attracts many of us to to Buddha practice. And at a certain point, you know, I I went through a phase of uh, rejection of the book. You know, I think this also is very common, uh, and it has to do, of course, with all the same thing. Um, I had been interested in Zen for a very long time. Uh, I had practiced Zen meditation since I was in the, in the university. You know, as, I, as, as you heard, in my university, uh, there is a, a class that you have to take in the first semester that is basically about Eastern philosophy and practices. So uh, I had been practicing for a long time and I really was into Zen. So I studied about it. And I always combine the practical part with also the academic studies. So I always, I, I have been very interested in Buddhism, especially in, in an academic sense uh, for a long time. So, you know, when, when there's this uh, kind of, uh, how can you say, sometimes it doesn't really match what's going on in the book with the same thing. And, you know, I know you, you have uh, also had Errol Hartman uh, in the podcast. So, you know, I, I read his, I, I read the, the, the paper he translated and everything. And then I started thinking critically about Zen, you know? And then as I started dwelling a little bit more, uh, how would you say, more objectively into Zen, because I was like really into Zen, so it was not very objective, it was kind of like, uh, you know, very uh, a very partialized way of looking at it. But then I look at it a little bit more objectively and um, you know, there were some things that I started not, you know, that I didn't think they, they, they matched very well. And it also re didn't really match my experience in Kyudo. So there was this phase of, of not liking the book. However, you know, the, the, the thing is that um, I was a little bit disappointed uh, in a sense, but I think that for a long time, my disappointment was not in the right place. Like, I was kind of disappointed in the in, in the Awa Sensei aspect, let's say. Uh, well, I should have been a little bit, bit more disappointed just in the Herigel kind of way. So why why do I mean? Uh, what what do I mean with this? 
is that, uh, yeah, I, I think that um, my appreciation for Awa Sensei and his philosophy and his experiences and all these things it was a little bit damaged by the way it was portrayed in Herigo's book. Because I think that it, by trying to give it a deeper dimension, it actually kind of directed it in a, in a direction which is not the correct one. You know, so I think that he was not a good uh, teller of our sensei's experience. Maybe that would be. But then, you know, through the years, I have reconciled a little bit for, uh, with it. And both with the Herigal and the book and with Awa, I've made peace with that. Uh, now I really like the book again, although with, you know, with very uh, careful uh, when, 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 when we're discussing about it. But especially, I have regained an interest, a deeper interest and, and, and also appreciation for Awa Sensei and his ideas. And I really think that uh, his philosophy is not well understood. I think it has not been well communicated. And, you know, now I'm, I'm looking deeper into it and I'm finding it very, very interesting. Yeah, and I, I can imagine that someone like you that's very introspective and very into researching these things that um, I'm kind of interested to hear in, in a couple of years or in whatever time it takes to see what this new take on his uh, work is going to be like, because I, I know that you're already doing a lot in terms of helping communicate a lot more that hasn't been passed on outside of Japan. Um, so you, you've had this practice, you're there for school, although you're spending more of your time in the dojo. Uh, I think you also did some something else. You worked on this documentary. Can you talk about? Oh, yeah. So, well, I, I work in a series of doc documentaries with Empty Mind Films. Uh, the first one is this one, you know, One Shot, One Life, maybe you have seen it. I think that some people in the Kudo community have have seen it. Uh, so, you know, this, uh, it was a, a, also very good. I don't know if, if you want to hear a little story of how that began. Yeah, absolutely. Talk about, <laughs> I want to know all the behind the scenes details. Right. So I was actually traveling to Tokyo for a Kendo event. I think it was, yeah, it was a Kendo world, a Keikokai that they doing in Tokyo. And uh, and, and well, it was a fantastic day because that day I saw the best kata exposition I have seen in my life. You know, it was uh, two women doing kata uh, in the Budokan with Inoue Sensei like guiding them. That was, it was a great event, really. Uh, but the thing is that at the end of this event, of this Keikokai, there was, there was like a, a lucky, uh, you know, like, uh, how do you say this? Like, a, like, you know, like everybody wins random prizes uh, kind of thing. So uh, I won a prize and I won a DVD. I had won a, a Empty Mind Films DVD. And I also knew that the person who made the DVD was there at the event. So I went to thank him for, you know, for bringing the DVD and to, to you know, to, to talk about it. And as I was approaching him, I heard him talking with somebody and I heard the words Sendai, Tohoku University, Kyudo, Awakenso. And I was like, wait, 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 this is very interesting. So I approached him, uh, the director, John Braley from Empty Minds uh, Films. And I told him like, you know, I wanted to thank you for bringing this DVD and, and, and because I want it and I'm gonna really enjoy watching it. But I heard some very interesting words when I was approaching you. And then we started talking and then, and, and he told me that he had these plans of making a, a two hour long Kyudo documentary and that he was thinking of going to, 
to Sendai and Tohoku University and told him, wait, wait, that's where I live. That's where I study. Uh, so let me help you. And that's how we first got into contact. Um, and that was the beginning of what well, was a, uh, it ended up being not only this documentary about Kyudo, but also like 10 more uh, shorter documentaries on, on different Budos. And we went all over to many places around Japan, filming and interviewing. So, wow, that was a, a very, very interesting experience overall. You know, it required, well, you know, for most of the, of the films, uh, the work was basically made by him and me. And also there are also collaborators, but for most part of the job was, it, it was the two of us. Uh, I had to make contact with the organizations and establish contact, negotiate, um, also uh, all the translation work of, you know, the, the questions that we were going to ask, the answers that, that came. Um, so that was a very hard and, and a, bit, a little bit, how would you say, um, exhausting work because, you know, you contact these very important global Budo associations uh, just as a foreign student in Japan. So, you know, it, it was, it was very interesting to make that contact, but of course the best part was going and doing the interviews. That was fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I had the chance of, of meeting many teachers throughout the, the filming. Um, yeah, it was, it was really incredible to be able to talk to them. And one of the things that are not really appreciated when, when you see the documentaries is that maybe you have a clip that is only like two minutes, but in order to get those two minutes, there was like a three hour interview behind it. So, you know, it was, it was great to have these three hour interviews with, with many teachers. So yeah, that was a, a great, great experience. Um, going yeah, back so a the one yeah. point though that really resonates with me is like this reaching out part because mm -hmm. uh, that's what this podcast is all about too. It's like all these people I had no idea, but somehow convinced them, especially in the beginning. So I'm just curious from like a peer to peer kind of thing, like what did you say to them that convinced them to to like take time and allow you into their space and and take a camera too because some like are very sacred areas what what kind of discussions do you have to go through yeah well and, and one thing that i must tell you is that you know I, I talk a lot about translating and talking japanese and japanese and japanese uh but to be honest i'm not so 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 great at, at doing anything you know like um i am not very efficient a very efficient worker so, for example, when I say that I have to do some uh, like writing letters in Japanese and everything, this means that it took me many, many hours to do each of these things. Like somebody who would be more skillful than me would maybe take like 10 minutes to write a letter. But for me, it took three days, you know. So it took a lot of work um, trying to ask in the most polite way. Uh, but also sometimes if you try to be too polite, it doesn't work. So. Uh, I had to, to, to think about, do a little bit of research about each of the organizations, uh, a little bit locate what they like, what they don't like, uh, and then try to, uh, when I approach them the first time, try to communicate that, uh, you know, I'm aware of, of what they like and they don't like, so I'm going to try to show what they like and try to not talk about what they don't like. Uh, and I think that this was very important in approaching these organizations in Japan. And, you know, sometimes it's very complicated. Um, for some Budo, I think that there's no problem between institutions, but for other Budo, there's like a very, 
how would you say, like very intense competition between dojos or groups. So for some group, for some uh, Buddha, I had to be very careful, for others, not so much. For example, for Kendo, uh, for Kudo, it was very, very easy. You know, it was very easy to get in touch with them. Um, and they were like, yeah, film whatever you want, you know. But for other Budo, you know, is if you film this, then you cannot film that. If you put that person, then I won't talk. Uh, you know, this kind of thing that it was very hard to negotiate. And for some, for some Budo, you know, actually, like, we had already made a film, and then they saw the film, and they say, no, no, we don't like it at all. We want you to do it from the start again. And, you know, it was very complicated depending on the Budo. So yeah, I could also make, like, a ranking of... Um, complicated Budo and, and you know, uh, welcoming Budo institutions. So yeah, it required a lot of research to, to, to be able to, um, that in this first approach, that you're not just blindly like, you know, trying grasping out, but that you know what it is about and that, you know, you have a little bit of information of what you should avoid when filming that particular uh, institution. Yeah, so there, there's definitely something there. You came as an engineer doing a student and doing some Budo, and then you have to learn these like Budo politics and negotiation and all that. Uh, and then there's this other piece where you didn't mention anything about having filmmaking experience in the past. What kind of things did you have to learn on the spot? What, what were some of the cool thing lessons that you uh, got from just watching him work? Mm -hmm. Right. So. Uh, so in the field, for example, I had to do the, the whole uh, interview and all of stuff, but also, you know, it was kind of part of my job, uh, getting to the places and making the schedule, all this planning was kind of like my responsibility. Uh, on the other hand, John, the director, he was the responsible of all the filming and the editing and all this other stuff. Um, so I had to learn a lot in, to be able to, to, to assist him. So for example, um, always i always had well you know it's like many things you have to do at the same time you have to interview but i also had like to have always a lens in my hand you know because i knew that sometimes he has to change lenses so you have to do that in five seconds um and also the sound you have to be holding the microphone and the distance uh the lighting so yeah i had really to learn everything that john needed me to learn in order for his shots to work well and this required me to to study a little bit of you know, of, of learn from him a little bit of the, how to uh, do the cinematography. I had some experience with photography. When I was in high school, I had a photography, a photography lab, you know, in, I had experience doing this. So like, um, how do you call this? Yeah, to actually print the photos. Um, develop, develop. Ah, yeah, exactly. So I had some experience in the black room and, and with photography, I had studied photography by myself. Uh, for a for a few years, so you know the things that he told me were made sense instantly. But I had to learn a lot, and you know also the the other thing is that uh, I think that John is a very creative person, and like creative people, um, you know sometimes they need to get into their own space, you know, maybe their own selfish space, you could say, in which they are focused in their activity. So you know like sometimes he will just like film here and then he will suddenly go somewhere and feel something. So I had to respond immediately and try to understand what he's filming. Uh, and, you know, and then try to make shadow or, or change the lens or whatever I had to do. So it was, it was a very, very hard in that sense as well, you know, being an assistant 
an assistant for, for this kind of work, uh, it requires a lot of attention, you know? So it was a little bit stressful, but wow, it was very, very enriching. I learned a lot with him. And you were still able to finish your, your degrees. <laughs> After all that, I could imagine like, oh my God, I need to get out of here. There's yeah, so much no. work. So, you know, in, in my strategy, I don't recommend this strategy. I don't think it's a great strategy. It worked for me, but I, I don't recommend it to anybody. Um, I would say that my progress, I was always in, the, in, in my studies trying to do what I had to do. You know, I, I, won't, I won't say like do the least possible, but do what I had to do and try not to do anything else than what I had to do. Uh, and maybe the last three or four months before I had to give my thesis, both for the masters and for the doctors, then there was no dojo. Then there was like three months of me living in the, in the, in the room, you know, like basically day after day in front of the computer, finishing experiments. Um, so the way I could spend a lot of, of time in boot activity was doing this sacrifice that required me like full time in my studies for a period of two or three months. That, that was really, really terrible, you know. Uh, when I was finishing my doctor's degree, I think I, I like gained weight like in like two months, eight kilograms or something like that. <laughs> and it was just because I was sitting and writing my, my work. Yeah, so uh, there's this, there's school, there's dojo, there's this other thing. Um, you also mentioned you met your wife there. Um, over the last, over like six years, some people are like, okay, it's time to head back home because it's just been here for a long time. What did what was your feeling around being in Japan, um, kind of fitting in with the group? Did you was it something like oh I could just stay here as long as I want? It's easy, but uh, I still like my home, so I want to go back. Or was it like I really need to get out of here? Maybe you can talk about over time. How was your feeling about living in Japan, and, and if it changed? Right. Yeah. So uh, I definitely think that the best choice for me was to come back to Ecuador or just get out of Japan at that time. Uh, you know, I had noticed um, by meeting many foreigners in many seminars, you know, I, I, I had tried to attend each and every seminar I possibly could during my stay in Japan. Um, so, you know, international Buddha university seminars, the Buddha culture seminars and the Nagoya Kyudo seminars and some Kendo seminars and so on. Uh, in the Kendo world, for example, I really enjoy those. And in these opportunities, I could meet a lot of foreigners that have been living in Japan for a long, long time. Uh, and I could see their experiences. And in general, I could evaluate that their experiences are not very good, really, you know. I think that um, for many young people, Japan is very tempting to stay. Uh, also, you have many great opportunities when you are just graduated. Uh, but I feel that as time goes on, um, Japan doesn't treat foreigners very well as they age, I would say. Uh, like, you know, maybe at the beginning, uh, you can get a work position that is better than a Japanese person. But the difference is that 10 years later, you're still going to be in that exact position while the other, the Japanese person already had a career, you know. So I started noting, noticing this and I didn't think it was something I wanted in my future, you know, like uh, lose relevance throughout time and trying to to keep up with that, I thought that it was very taxing for the for the people I knew. So that was a part of it. You know, I, I kind of, uh, I could see the experience of many people I had met that 
you know, they were married in Japan, working in Japan. And even though they had great uh, things, like being able to practice in dojos and, and, and access to the best teachers and all that stuff, I think that their situation in total is not something I wanted for myself. And in the other hand, you know, I had, I had this uh, idea maybe planted on me by one of my sensei in Kyudo sensei in Sendai that, um, that actually it was important for me to uh, develop on my own. You know, it was, maybe can talk about it some other time too, but I had like two main Sendai teachers for Kyudo and they were very different. One was very conservative uh, and the other one's a little bit, I would say maybe liberal. And, uh, and I think that those terms are not very adequate, but uh, I would say that one was very, um, you know, do Kyudo exactly as the teacher tells you and do not deviate a single millimeter from that, uh, very strict in that sense. While the other teacher was like, you know, try this and try that and try this and this other thing. So one teacher will teach me Tenochi is done like this and, you know, just like this. While the other one will tell me, you know, in this school we Tenochi is done like this, in this other school like that, in this school like that. So I had this contrast between maybe what, something that was a little bit dogmatic and something that was more experimental. And um, as time passed, at first I was very, very uh, devoted to the conservative teacher, you know? But as time passed, uh, I started really appreciating what the other sensei was also teaching me, you know? All these variations and all this diversity in shooting. And, and something very important that he told me once uh, also helped me make this decision of coming back to Ecuador, you know? He's like, if you really want to, to be better, you will have to be by yourself, you know? If, if you're always with the teachers, you're always gonna be a student. So if you really want to learn, you have to be the teacher. So that for me was the, the, what really signaled that the right thing to do was, you know, to get out of Japan. Uh, yeah, you know, you miss the teachers and the access to the dojos and everything. But in the other hand, you are able to position yourself in a different role that can help you understand all the things you learned, you know, by having to teach them. So, yeah, I think that this was also very important in that decision. I think what you mentioned is super valuable in terms of experience because uh, when someone goes to Japan for a short period of time, they might have just one type, like they might only experience the very rigid traditional style teaching and dojo uh, or the opposite one. And then they'll come back and they'll say, this is what Japanese dojo is like when yeah. even within that country, it's very broad and different. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm curious, and because you've also attended a lot of seminars, what are the differences in terms of students, like in terms of how they behave, how they interact, how they shoot um, mm -hmm. when you go to these things? Is it something where you go to a seminar and you you can tell immediately, okay, this guy's from this type of dojo, this guy's not, where, or is it like uh, all blended together? Yeah, I, I think that it's now it's easier for me to, to kind of differentiate this kind of thing. Um, but normally, you know, I, I think that it's, it's hard to tell, to, to know in which term is correct to talk about this, but a word that keeps on showing up very <laughs> a lot lately in my, in my thinking is dogma, you know? I think that it's easy to recognize dogmatic people from non-dogmatic people. Uh, and I think that especially like uh, people that have a very dogmatic uh, training, you can tell that right away. Um, and normally it's, it's not because of, of very good things, maybe because of a little bit rigid, 
not only in their way of thinking, but also in their movements and in their gestures. So uh, I think that it's it's a little bit possible to to identify, you know, what what kind of uh, Buddha practice people are undertaking by just by uh, being a short time with them. In general, and then like even in like North or in the West, you could mm -hmm. see that some students prefer just to be told what to do, and then yeah. they're okay. And that, while others are more like, I want to be able to think for myself and get those options and mm -hmm. yeah, that kind of thinking. Uh, and I, I think I saw somewhere recently that that's where um, that's where younger Japanese are headed, even mm -hmm. in today this day and age, towards the more free thinking kind of. So it seems like these more traditional older ones will start to fade away. Right. And you know, something that, that another thing that is related to what I was telling you about is that, uh, you know, I have these two sensei, right? I would say like the, the more dogmatic sensei and the more experimental sensei. And a little bit also the, the reason why I started focusing more in the other, in one more than the other, uh, is because for a very, very, very plain reason, uh, the very conservative sensei has a very correct and very nice Japanese, um, while the other sensei, you know, he has a very strong Tohoku accent. So it actually took me a couple of years to be able to understand him. He was always very friendly with me and trying to teach me a lot, but I just couldn't understand him. You know, it was very, very hard for me to, to get through that. Um, so he was very, in a certain way, the conservative sensei was more international, while the not so conservative sensei was a little bit more local, but uh, in a couple times, the local sensei, you know, um, he he made this, how he caused a scene in the dojo at least twice, you know, because what would happen is that uh, we will be practicing and he will call me like, come here, come here. And we will go to the Makiwara room and then we will be like one hour and he will be teaching me all these variations of everything, you know, like, you know, this can be done like this, like this, like this. Uh, you combine, for example, this dot scuri with the, this kind of thing, like different combinations of things. And uh, and a, a couple of times we, we would be interrupted while this was going to happen. And he got not angry, you know, but he would say like, you know, don't interrupt this. This is very important. Um, you know, like you should follow his example. Sometimes he would, he did this at least twice, uh, you know, like making a little bit of a scandal like you know you should be like him he's always asking and trying to understand you just do what you're told you know if it's up to you kudo is gonna be finished by the next generation he told me uh the future of kudo is in foreigners like fonseca-san you know if, if we continue practicing like you practice this is gonna be finished very soon so this was very shocking for me you know he was like, and I was like saying, sorry, sorry, I didn't, I'm very sorry, I don't know what's going on. But now I understand what he meant. And this has also shaped a lot of, of, of my life. Uh, I, I agree with him. I think that uh, in a certain way, if Buddha practice continues this way, I think it's not going to be very long lived in Japan, you know? And I think that it's uh, important to make progress. It, from, from our perspective, it would seem like, for example, Kyudo is growing because we see that internationally we're adding numbers, but you know, like 10 people in Ecuador, 20 people here are really nothing in comparison to the Kyudo community in, in, in Japan. And the Kyudo community in Japan is, is uh, diminishing, you know, is reducing itself. And more importantly, uh, it might be increasing, but in the levels of high school and university, but in grown up adults, you know, practicing Kyudo, 
is going lower and lower. So yeah, there is a there is a situation where um, if Kyudo practice continues this way, the pop population is going to be reduced in such a way that, for example, the kake makers, the the yumi makers, and the artisans for the equipment that is the better quality equipment, not directed for high school and university, they're going to start becoming less, less and less and less. And uh, some sensei in Japan are aware of this. So uh, I think that they do find the, the fact that many foreigners are trying to go to Japan and learn as a, something that's kind of like uh, refreshing for them. That, is, is, that might be the, cl the, hint, the clue uh, to avoid the extinction of, 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 of the practice. Yeah, I think that this aspect of wanting to learn and asking questions and showing that you can think for yourself is mm -hmm. is such an important part of our practice. Like you can just you can redo it. What was it? Um, you can repeat the same thing over and over again. But if you're doing the same thing, uh, what was that quote? Uh, if you always do what you always done, you always get what you've always got. <laughs> so it's and I think that's a that's something that is true even in the West. Maybe it's not in the Budo because most of us come with this. Um, we already know it's different. So we're already trying to explore something that's different and ask questions and stuff. But even in our day-to-day -day lives, whether we're driving our cars or going to work here, we have to be aware that having this curiosity is really important. Um, mm -hmm. Sticking with the Japan theme, is there? Do you have another story you want to share about your time there? That's interesting. That uh, yeah. Oh wow, there's there's way too many, <laughs> but uh, I think that maybe one of the of the um, uh, and maybe this will relate to to what we might talk next time. Uh, you know, there were there were a couple situations that were mind blowing for me. Like there were there's a couple of experiences that. Uh, you know, I, I really, that have really uh, stayed in my mind. And for example, one of these, oh, well, before before that, yeah, there's a huge experience that I can talk to you about. And is that actually I was in the, in the you know, in Sendai when that great Tohoku earthquake happened, the earthquake and tsunami. So yeah, I think that I'm gonna tell you more about that than my, than my strong impression because this is, I think is very relevant. Uh, I was finishing my master's degree when the earthquake happened, and I was actually in the laboratory. I was with a, with a furnace, uh, doing some experiments at 2,000 degrees, burning some chemicals at 2,000 degrees, and the earthquake happened. And well, that was quite experience, let me tell you. Um, very scary, but you know, in all in all, um, I was very thankful that if I had to go through such a huge calamity, I was very thankful that it happened in Japan, you know? Um, it was a catastrophe, but the response was so incredibly efficient, you know, uh, that it was like, at the same time that this terrible thing was happening, uh, it was very inspiring to see how people reacted to it, you know. I think that, for example, if, if something like that would happen in Ecuador, uh, there would be no reconstruction, you know, it would be a matter of closing the, the door and throwing away the keys, you know, it's like, yeah, we're done for. But in Sendai, it was incredible. Uh, how people reacted. Um, one of the things I remember in the most from that experience is going back home a little bit in the after the earthquake. It was already dark. Uh, it was snowing. It was very cold. The the the, the floor was frozen. Um, there was no light, no telephone, no internet, nothing. You know, just the earthquake just happened. And 
and I was, and as I was going home, I saw how in the Combini, uh, the people were lining up outside the Combini and they were very organized, like taking one bottle of drink, one uh, snack and one other food, you know, and everybody followed these rules, you know, uh, nobody took more than they needed for that moment. And the people were in, in, in the, there was no cashier and the people were leaving the money and taking their three items. And nobody was coordinating this. This happened spontaneously. And this was one of the most impressive things I experienced in my life, you know, that in this, uh, in, the, in the heat of the moment, uh, many people still didn't have contact with their families. You know, you didn't know if what was going on. Uh, and even under those situations, people were standing in line, being respectful and considerate for others and taking just what they need and leaving the money in a, in a little box, you know, so, so it will be gathered later. It was incredible, really. Yeah. So what happened in those next couple of days? How did you manage to even, yeah, with no power and no water? Well, wow. For example, I, I can tell you one of the things that we had to do, uh, it was like a pack of wolves looking for, for energy, uh, the students, you know? So we went, we went around uh, the town in, in bikes uh, trying to look for, we, we needed to charge our cell phones. So for example, we found that some of the vending machines actually have like a battery in them and you can actually plug in stuff. So we had to drive, you know, go in groups and try to locate these vending machines and tell each other. Uh, then we will find somewhere that, where they had like bottled water, like they would, we would get or, you know, it was uh, just trying to communicate with all the other students and trying to, to explore what was going on, where we had like certain things available and then go back to the, the headquarters, let's say, and then tell everybody, come on, let's go here. And yeah, it was, it was it, dur during two or three days, it was really uh, precarious, you know, no light, no internet, no water, no gas, nothing. Uh, and it was, it took a while. I think it took almost 24 hours for me to communicate with my family here in Ecuador. And yeah, it was, it was very, very scary. And another, another one of the, of the very shocking things I remember from that time, is that that night, the night of the earthquake, we didn't know there was a tsunami. So, you know, we're in Sendai and we don't know about Fukushima. We don't know about anything. We just know that there was a huge earthquake and we didn't know anything else. And we went with, some, with a group of friends to uh, the highest mountain in our neighborhood. And you can actually see like very far away the sea. And that night, there was a line of fire tracing the shape of the coastline, you know? And we were like, what the hell is going on? We didn't know anything about a tsunami by that time. You know, it's impossible, no communication. And we were like, this is so strange. And the next morning, you know, that night uh, we slept in a school, in a, like, a, like a refuge. And the next morning I woke up and opened a newspaper. And then there was like this huge two-sided two print of the Sendai airport completely destroyed by the tsunami. And then I found out, you know, like maybe, you know, that the day after I knew about the tsunami and then we could relate that what we were looking in the coastline was actually the destruction of the tsunami and all the fires that it caused. And then the Fukushima thing started and well, that was a, a crazy adventure. <laughs> I can only tell you that uh, in order for me, I was a little bit forced to come back to Ecuador. I, I didn't want to come back to Ecuador, you know, like many people fled Sendai. Uh, when the earthquake happened, but 
I was one of those people that were like, no, I'm not leaving. You know, I, I feel like I want to be part of this place. So I'm not leaving. But I was a little bit forced to come back. There was like a diplomatic um, strategy I was played upon that the authorities in my country kind of forced me to come back to, to report that I'm alive and then I come back to, to Japan. But, you know, in order for me to go back to Ecuador, I had to basically take a taxi from Sendai to Osaka. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's much more complicated. It took three days and, you know, it was like a, uh, it was something like maybe the, like, like a zombie movie or a zombie apocalypse movie kind of three days. But yeah, it was, it was quite an adventure that. But, you know, all in all, uh, something that is interesting is that many people, they will be like, oh, you would be like very scared or, or traumatized or, or, or how you want to go back to Japan. You know, there's still earthquakes and the Fukushima thing going on. Uh, why don't you stay in Ecuador? And I was like, no way. You know, if, if something like this is going to happen, I want to be in, in Japan when it happens. You know, so even though it was a very traumatic experience, like such a disaster, um, yeah, I was very impressed by, by the way, the positive way Japan responded. So I was not afraid after that. I was like, yeah, uh, I feel super safe in Japan. I feel super safe in Japan. So I was uh, not. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> we, on the, on the other hand, we were planning on being in Japan in July that mm -hmm. year. And the, there was still kind of fluctuating talk on whether, how far the, the radiation would go. So we right. just postponed our trip for another year. But yeah. That was a crazy time. I can't believe you were there when, when that happened. Wow, yeah, definitely. And, and it was it was very, very incredible, you know. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and not only that time, yeah, because sometimes you think that the big earthquake is scary, but then there were big earthquakes every day for like six months, you know, like a, a seven magnitude earthquake was like everyday stuff. You know, you will get two or three of those and you know, only one of them are like big news in, in other places, but then you will have like two or three for like three or four months every day. Yeah, so it was a very impressive <laughs> time, like a very exciting and scary time to be to be in Sendai. Yeah, talk about just knowing that it'll come sometime, but not knowing when and where you'll be. Like you could be on the toilet <laughs> for all yeah. and things are just shaking, man, wow. Yeah, and, you, and just let me tell you one thing, like a couple, a couple days before the big earthquake, there was already like a seven something earthquake uh, that was kind of a little bit rougher than usual. And I happened to, to actually like to write in my Facebook, like, you know, this earthquake that happened today, uh, many people think is related to the big earthquake that is a cyclic earthquake that happens every 40, 50 years, uh, and many people you know, they think that the probability for the big earthquake to happen in the next month is like 80% or something like that. Uh, and two days later, the big earthquake came. So, you know, I think that uh, there were a little bit of signs of this, you know, like I, I saw some interviews about people talking about it, but we never expected that it was going to be like a couple of days later. So yeah, very, very scary. Yeah, and you could yeah. be anywhere. You could have been anywhere, you know. Crazy. Uh, well, it's glad that none of your friends got severely injured or anyone you knew uh, was hurt yeah. in that situation. So, last time we talked about, uh, I was telling you that I had an early interest in, in Japanese 
pop culture, basically, you know, through video games and also like uh, anime and origami. And, you know, that at the beginning, my access to, to these games, because it's Ecuador and the things are not very available since, since always, uh, I had to find like these uh, contraband games, which were in Japanese. And that was like the, the first time I really wanted to learn Japanese because, for example, I remember playing Final Fantasy, which is a very difficult game and you have to read a lot of text, but I only had access to a Japanese version. So my way to be able to, with 10 years old, to be able to finish this game uh, was just trying to write the words that were written in different colors and then trying to match them, you know, like, uh, okay, this word seems to be important. So let's try to see if this word is a, is a town, is a character, is a whatever. And that was how, that's how I was able to finish the game completely in Japanese without knowing anything, right? And, and then I was like, yeah, I need to learn Japanese since I was a kid. But that opportunity was not available for me until much later because here in Ecuador, we didn't have uh, Japanese schools really for a long time until kind of recently. So uh, that was a little bit of my first interest, uh, but it really took off when I went into the university uh, and then when I entered the San Francisco University, it's a very liberal arts based university. So I had the chance to take courses on oriental philosophy and practices, for example, the history and spread of Buddhism throughout Asia. Uh, then I started taking Japanese language classes, Chinese calligraphy as well. And all of this while taking chemical engineering classes. So that's something I really like about this university that even an engineer has a chance and has to uh, take some of these classes. And it's also in the university where I really uh, discovered and practiced, started practicing Budo in the form of Kendo, uh, maybe some 16 years ago. And then um, also something I, I, I'm not sure I mentioned this last time, but in my junior year, that's the third year, right? A junior, I think, in the university. We use, we use a different terms. We don't have junior, oh, freshman, senior, that kind of stuff. It's just year one, year two, year three. All oh, right. I think it might be junior kind of career. Uh, I actually went to study in the U.S. I was there for a year in the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, uh, where I, I went for a, in a, with a scholarship for engineering. But as always, I used the, these opportunities also to, to take Japanese classes and kendo uh, as well. And of course, a lot of engineering. Right? It was really hard to study in that university. And once I finished the university, I started, I came back to Ecuador and finished my chemical engineering career. And then I started working as a process design engineer. Uh, and during this time, I was working for about two years. And during this time, uh, I kept on studying Japanese by myself. Every day I had to go to work in the bus. So I was like, and you know, in Ecuador, going in the bus means like basically going in a very crowded space, you know, holding like this uh, with many, many people around you. Um, many of them pickpockets, but still I managed to, to study Japanese every day in the bus. I carried the big book trying to learn by myself. And also during this time, I was training martial arts a lot, even though I was working full time. Uh, I was practicing kendo maybe three or four times a week, Aikido as well, two times a week, karate also two times a week, and also had some practice with Jodo and Yaido uh, while I was working. And also during this period when I was working, I also uh, studied a lot of Zen and practiced Zen uh, very intensely. Like, so basically I had martial arts, work, martial arts, 
And that was my every day for like two years. So it was it was a, a period of my life that I look back and I'm like, it would be impossible to, for me to keep that rhythm again. But that happened for some time. Uh, and that was okay until I kind of grew disappointed with my job. Uh, and the problem is that my job, the nature of my job uh, as a chemical engineer is to, at least in, in this work was to design uh, the petroleum extraction and refinery uh, facilities. And the thing is that our petroleum here in Ecuador is in the Amazon jungle. So that meant that all the things that I was designing and everything were built in the Amazon jungle. And although I had a lot of care to follow the, the environmental um, norms and all that, the moment where the constructor has to start the project, you know, they start cutting expenses and and they start uh, failing to 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 do these important things for the environment. And then uh, part of my job required me to go to the built places, to the facilities, and verify that what I planned was what was built. And unfortunately, this was not the case most of the times. So there was this problem where, you know, I had to approve some projects that were not following environmental rules strictly. So I had this problem and I just decided to, you know, give my back to the industry completely and uh, try to do the opposite, complete opposite thing, which was to study uh, environmental remediation or something like that. So there's where I started looking for opportunities to study. And I learned of a scholarship in Japan just by reading the newspaper, you know, as like a serendipity, you might say. Um, and I was like, wow, yeah, excellent. This is a, a great opportunity. Um, I had been learning Japanese, so I thought I had good chances for to apply for this scholarship. And thus uh, I applied and was selected for the scholarship, thankfully. So I asked to be uh, accepted into Hoke University. And I was telling you that the decision to go to Tohoku University in Sendai was in part based because of, uh, of the influence of the Herigel book, right? Uh, I thought that, you know, it would be awesome to go and, and learn Kyudo. At that time, I had never really seen Kyudo with my own eyes. It was like an ideal to go to Japan and continue my Kendo practice, which was my main martial art at that moment, um, and also learn something that was not available in Ecuador. Um, and it, although it, was, it, it has been available in South America, it has been very small until now. I think it's, you know, Kyudo is very young outside Japan anywhere. So um, I had the illusion to go and practice Kyudo. And I thought that going to the place where the events of this book took place would be like an awesome idea. But, you know, uh, it was not a Kyudo power, powerhouse I was expecting really. However, going to Sendai was a great, great opportunity and I will, uh, was a great decision and I'll let you know uh, why in a little bit. And also, of course, the university, Tohoku University is one of the best universities in Japan. Right now, it is the best university in Japan. So also from my academic perspective, it was a great decision. And the laboratory to which I, I belonged was really, really great. So I had no regrets in, in my choice, in my decision to go into Sendai. So I was there for about six years during which I studied my master's and my PhD in environmental sciences in the chemistry of recycling. And also uh, I practice a lot of martial arts, as I was telling you, uh, sometimes I feel like I, I put too much emphasis in the martial arts and not in the academic aspect. So I was training like Kendo some two or three times a week and Kyudo a lot more, maybe 12 hours at least uh, every week of Kyudo. And, um, 
and it was great. In, in Kendo, I could train with Hachidan, with a few Hachidan in Sendai, with, um, for example, Endo Sensei, who's the Shihan of Tohoku University Kendo Club, and Sone Sensei as well. And in Kyudo, you know, I had a lot of teachers in Kyudo. Um, the main teachers were Takeuchi Sensei, uh, who many people know from the One Shot One Live documentaries. And another of my main teachers was also Matsubara Sensei. And I told you a little bit about them. Uh, last time, you know, Takeuchi Sensei is very conservative. You can see this in the documentary, you know. Uh, he's like what we would expect of a Kyudo teacher. I think that he's very, um, I, I wouldn't say stereotypical, more kind of like um, um, archetypical art, uh, Kyudo teacher kind of, of thing. And in the other hand, Matsubara Sensei was a little bit more, uh, how would you say, more uh, liberal, perhaps. You know, and these, these terms are not quite precise, but you know, he had, was a little bit more experimental in his approach to Kyudo. Um, and also, you know, one of the things that was great of living in Sendai was that I didn't uh, spend much money. You know, in my, my, my costs for living and transportation were very low in comparison to people who live in, in Tokyo or Osaka. So this means that with Sendai as headquarters, it was very easy for me to travel to many places. So I had the chance to go around and, uh, and go to seminars and, and travel a lot while I was living in Japan. And, you know, also something I, I, I mentioned a little bit last time is that there are not many foreigner practitioners of Budo in Sendai. Although there are many international students, there are not many Budo, uh, you know, people interested in Budo. But I had uh, a very close friends, international friends, Budo friends, and it was great to travel with them to seminars. For example, in Kendo, I, uh, Brian Beckford from the US, he does Kendo and Yaido as well. And also Thiago Junqueira from Brazil. Those were my, my Kendo buddies. And also in Kyudo, uh, for example, Kentaro from Poland. Uh, he was also a, a very close friend in the Kyudo in Sendai. And with them, I, I tried to travel and, and go to seminars as much as possible. And some of these seminars, I'm, I'm sure you know, like the International Budo Culture Seminar in the Budo University, in the, well, in Katsura, near the Budo University, or the uh, Oceania Seminars for Kyudo, and also the for Kendo, the uh, Kendo World Keikokai. Those are also great. I really like them. And I was very excited to go to the Kendo World Keikokai um, because for a long time I had admired Alex Bennett. Uh, I really liked the, the idea of him being able to have an academic position regarding Budo and his work as a translator. I really, really ad admire that. So I was very happy to, to meet him uh, under these circumstances. And then actually, you know, I, I, I got to know Alex a little bit better and actually work with him uh, because we worked together in the Budo documentaries, you know, he was a narrator in the documentary series. So we had to do some work together in that. So that was great. So <clears throat> also I told you about um, the Kamito family, which was very important for me. I was kind of adopted by this family, especially by Mr. Kamito. And really I owe him all the development I, I could do in Kyudo, I owe it completely to him. You know, he was, uh, he taught me everything and he took me to the places. He always let me know what was going on in the Kyudo community. So really, I, I, I owe him a lot of thanks. And also, 
not only in the Kyudo aspect, but also in the Japanese uh, family life or in the, or also in the Japanese language, especially in the local, um, how do you call this, in the, in the local, um, what's the right word? local parlance, I guess you would say, like the, the local slang and stuff. Uh, so that allowed me to really be able to communicate with the people of Sendai, you know, in a, in a better language than the, just the normal standard Japanese. So that was like uh, a lot of insight into the Japanese family through the Kamito family. And I was also telling you that, that Kamito-san is a very unusual person. He combines some aspects of very, very traditional and strict Japanese culture with some very, very liberal global aspects joining the same person. So yeah, he's an incredible person, really. Uh, and and here's the guy that you said backpacked all around the world. Yeah, well. exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's very interesting. Like uh, when you hear about his, his youth and his experiences when he was young, you know, you hear these things like, wow, who would do that? You know, like go as a backpacker to Nepal, but never going to Nepal, you know, in, without information, he just went to the places for, uh, without uh, a time limit. So he just traveled where his life took him, you know, for a long time. So that developed in, uh, in him a very interesting personality. But if you look at him in Japan, you would think that he's like the most conservative Japanese man you've ever met. You know, he, as soon as he gets inside his house, he changes his occidental clothing to yukata or kimono. And that's how he feels better, you know? And he's like the man of the family. He gets first to the afuro and all this stuff. But at the same time, you know, it's, 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 it's very, it's a very strange uh, contraposition. So yeah, it was great to meet him like a, a person like that as well. And what else also, uh, I told you about my experience with the uh, documentary films, Empty Mind Films, that, um, you know, it was a lot of work. It required the organization part, approaching the institutions, convincing them, preparing questions, and then the part of executing the interviews and then preparing the translations, doing the subtitles, uh, all this stuff was a lot of, lot of work. But, you know, working with the director, John Brady, it really was a great experience. Um, you know, I, I really, I think that he does his job very well. Um, I, for example, one of the things that impressed me is that how he managed to construct the One Shot, One Life, the Kudo documentary. I, I, at the beginning, I didn't really understand what he was doing because it was kind of too Western for my liking, you know? But when he finished it and, and the music and everything, it was, it was actually like, uh, then I could really appreciate a little bit of the genius behind his, his concept. And, and I really, uh, really liked working with him. It was very hard too. you know, he's a, he's a person that is very hard to work with. Uh, but if you manage to, to match his pace, it's, it's a very great experience. You know, sometimes uh, he was too absorbed in his job. So a part of my job was kind of like, kind of taking care of him somehow, you know, like don't stop here or, you know, move a little bit here or, or when he forgot to ask or say, or, or say thank you to somebody, like I had to like, yeah, yeah he, he meant to say thank you or whatever. So it was a little bit like also trying to, to allow him to be able to do his work. So that was great. And the best part of this, of course, was meeting the people and going to the places where we filmed. 
So for example, in karate, I met some really interesting people like Higaona sensei from Okinawa, from Goju-ryu, and uh, also uh, sensei Naka Mori from JKA, uh, Yahara sensei from Karate no Michi, Otsuka sensei from Wadoryu. So, you know, I never thought I, would, I was gonna be able to meet all these people. And also in Aikido, I had the chance to meet and, and talk to uh, Doshu, to Moriteru Ueshiba, as well as Mitsuteru Ueshiba, visit Daiwama branch dojo, uh, also like uh, some very important Aikido sensei like uh, Chino Susumu and, and Ando Tsuneo, you know, some of the pupils of, of Shioda Goso sensei. Uh, so that was also great you know, and, and so much more. One of, uh, of my favorite episodes doing the documentaries is when we went to visit the Iwama dojo and we met a lot of, of the pupils of Ueshiba sensei. Uh, and also some of the uchideshi that were working there. And after the interviews, we, you know, we got some sake together. They, they have their own Aikido sake, you know, this brand of, of, of sake. And it was very nice to talk to them about metaphysics of martial arts until, you know, Doshu uh, announced that he was going to the dojo before everyone expected. So then we had to like run away before he caught us. So it was really funny that, you know, like, the, the pupils of Ueshiba Sensei, they are all very old guys now. Um, but we were all like, you know, trying to run away like children, hiding away from, from Doshu who was coming to, to, to the place without uh, previously telling us, no? And everybody was a little bit too drunk to handle the situation. So that was kind of, of funny uh, and so on. So these kind of, of situations were really great during the, the, the documentaries uh, series. And also in Kendo, um, you know, some of the things that, one of the things I really liked from, from the filming was meeting some really cool sensei. For example, uh, Osawa sensei, you know, he's, he's the author of a, of a very famous book on, on Kendo. Uh, and also Inoue sensei, you know, he was also like a very important sensei. Uh, uh, I really appreciated his perspective on Kendo kata, for example. And also some interesting sensei like, um, Terukuni, Uki Terukuni sensei, who is the sensei who practices the, uh, what's the name, the Ichiken Kai, you know, it's like pre-war kendo. So it was also great to, to be able to meet him. And, and actually after the filming, I went to train with him a few times to Tokyo. Uh, and it was great to, to be able to also practice some pre-war kendo, you know, like uh, things where you will be able to do Yoko Men and, and, and foot sliding and this kind of stuff. And so on, you know, then we, we also filmed Jukendo, Tankendo, Naginata, Judo, and Shorinji Camp. Shorinji Camp was a very interesting experience to go to the headquarters. Uh, and that in itself could be just a very long story, you know. Shorinji Camp, it was, uh, how could you say, it was a very interesting experience and it was also a little bit terrifying experience. Um, you know, but well, Shorinji yeah, Camp. Say something, something about that. Right. So I thought that Shorinji Kempo, I, I think it's awesome. You know, I, I really like the idea of martial arts plus the ethical aspect and uh, part of the meditation, you know, like, like Shaolin. But there is also a kind of a social and um, political dimension to Shorinji Kempo that is a little bit strange. So, you know, um, at the same time that I was very interested and, and I felt very welcome when I visited the Shorinji Kempo headquarters, 
At the same time, you also feel a little bit watched and constrained. You know, it's kind of like a strange situation. You know, it's like the walls have eyes <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, and also you had to be very careful with what you said, what you filmed. So it was all, uh, you know, how do you say? Uh, in comparison to other martial arts, for example, the kendo and kudo in particular, which are so open. I really like these institutions, you know, like they are, you know, this is us, film whatever you want. Some other budo are very, very secretive, you know. Uh, just like a little detail, I'm going to tell you one of the things that were strange from Shoninji Kempo. We spent like three days in the headquarters filming these amazing embu expositions of the highest, you know, technical aspects of Shorinji Kempo. And well, when, when, when John was doing the editing for the documentary, they asked him to not include any at all scenes of fighting. So this is like, how can you do a martial arts documentary without any martial arts? So, you know, this is this kind of things and, and they have their reasons, you know, because, you know, I think that Shorinji Kempo is somehow transforming from a martial arts thing to a more a social force. So, you know, this, this kind of thing was a little bit interesting, but scary at the same time, you know, the, the, the amount of control uh, they expect to have over the, the exposition of their, of their martial art. So yeah, that was, that was a little bit interesting, uh, but still really, really great to, to visit the, the headquarters. Uh, what else? And also, for example, well, and, and Kudo, of course, the documentary of Kudo is, is amazing. And one thing I, I think it's important to, to mention about the Kudo documentary is that I feel that when the documentary was released, that was uh, maybe some 10 years ago, uh, maybe a little bit less, eight, 10 years ago, I think that there was still a lot of discussion regarding what is Kudo, you know? And then we had like some bands like Kudo is Zen and Kudo is philosophy, Kudo is Marshall, you know, like, all these very stiff positions. But I think that the One Shot One Life documentary uh, has the merit to show Kudo in all these aspects, you know, and, and say that all of these is Kudo. It's not like either one, one of them is correct and the other ones are not, but Kudo is all of this. You know, there's a Kudo, there's a, a is something when you're at a school level, Kudo is something when you're in university level, when you are a, a, an adult, you know, it has different dimensions. For some people, it's just uh, a space for social interaction. For some people, it's a space for personal development. Uh, some people like the competitive aspect. Some people just want the Shinsa aspect, for example. Uh, and I really think that the documentary managed to, uh, to show this all together, you know, and how all of these matches uh, instead of compete. It's not like one Kudo, but Kudo is a very diverse practice. So I think that that was great. Uh, from the documentary, I really think that um, I feel that it has helped to change a little bit the perspective of, of, you know, accepting more different kinds of practice within what we, a uh, single discipline. So what else I can tell you, uh, trying to, to trying to get to the point where we left last time. So uh, another experience I think it's, it's worth mentioning during the time as I was in Japan was uh, participating in the 16 World Kendo Championship. Uh, that was held in the Nihon Budokan. Um, yeah, participating in itself, it was great, you know, like being able to, to, to fight in the Nihon Budokan, incredible, you know, it's like a dream come true. Um, but more than that, 
I really like the experience of the Ecuadorian kendo team coming to Japan. It was the first time for most of them. Uh, and we traveled to Oita in Kyushu to, to train before we, we went to, to Tokyo. And it was great because I had the job to be the interpreter for everybody. So I had to be in every interaction there was between an Ecuadorian and a Japanese sensei, I was in between. So, you know, of course I was very busy, but at the same time, I had access to everything that was being communicated. And that's one of the great things of being a translator or, or an interpreter. You are the only person who really has access, access to absolutely everything that is being communicated. So I really like that. Um, to be able to, to have the experience and, and actually to have my, my skills in Japanese to, to serve a purpose. So I, that was great. I really enjoyed, um, you know, being of service for, for the Kendo, Ecuadorian Kendo team. And, 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 and just looking at my friends in Ecuador, you know, many of them I had trained for many, for a long time, but then when I went to Japan, I didn't see them for, for a long time. And meeting them again in Japan was really incredible. So that was very, very nice. And also, you know, uh, where we left off a little bit, another interesting thing that happened during my time in Japan was that I was in the epicenter of the great Tohoku earthquake in 2011. So I'm going to make very long story very short. Um, the most terrifying thing, you know, something I, I, I remember last time we were talking, um, I was in a taxi across Japan. So the thing is that the most terrifying thing during the earthquake was actually a cultural shock with Ecuador. So, you know, this is strange, you know, what, what about a culture shock, Ecuadorian culture shock in, in, the Japan, in Japan in the earthquake? So what happened is that um, I had to deal with the Ecuadorian embassy in Japan, okay? And what happened is that that was the worst part. You know, dealing with the Ecuadorian government and with the Ecuadorian embassy in Japan was the most terrifying, and most difficult part of the entire tsunami and Fukushima, everything experience. And the reason is because at that moment, I had to deal with many of the aspects that make Ecuador remain an underdeveloped country, you know? For example, let, I'll tell you an example. When I tried to contact the embassy to ask for help, you know, like give me information or help me move or, you know, like what's going on, some assistance, uh, they told me, you know, you're so selfish. You are in no situation to be asking for help. You know, there's people that are in so much worse situation. And they told me that they couldn't, uh, you know, take care of me in any way or help me in any way because they already had too much work uh, repatriating three dead Ecuadorians. You know, and this was, oh my, I was like, yeah, okay, if there's people who died, it must be terrible. But this is the point. No, no Ecuadorians died. You know, they were they were saying that three people from Ecuador had died during the earthquake and tsunami, but there was absolutely no Ecuadorians dead in this. What happened is that they didn't even have a register of, of Ecuadorians in Japan or where they were or anything. So they decided that three people that they thought were in Sendai were dead. And they actually called their families in Ecuador and they say, you know, there was an earthquake and we think that this, this person died. And the families were like terrified, you know, like, oh my God, earthquake, Japan, dead. These people, one of the people that they reported death to their family was not living in Japan for over 11 years. <laughs> and they called the family to tell them that, you know, that person died in Japan. He's like, 
And of course, it was a, a great confusion. But what was going on, and this is the terrible part, you know, is that the embassy was trying to make use of some emergency funding for themselves. So that was the whole scheme. And they were, every time I tried to call, they just told me like, no, there's people there and don't bother, you know? Uh, we're dealing with so many problems, you are not a problem. And I was the only person who actually needed help in that moment. I was the only Ecuadorian or, or one of two Ecuadorians who were in the entire region when that happened, you know? Uh, but still, they were refusing to help me in order to access this fund. So this is, was one of these things of very deep corruption, you know, uh, that I had to deal with. Um, so in the end, I could finally, I was doing my intelligence work by myself. And then I, find, I found out that it was, a, it was not true that there were any dead Ecuadorians or anything. And I talked to them, you know, like, okay, you know, oh, and what other thing that happened, I got a call from Ecuador from the, I don't remember where, from immigration office or something. And they told me, you know, this problem in Japan, it's making also problems here. And we need to prove that you are fine and safe. So you need to come back to Ecuador. And I was like, I don't want to go back to Ecuador. And they were like, you have to go back to Ecuador. If you don't come back to Ecuador and make this easy for us, we're going to put some blockings so that you are never going to be able to get a visa to Japan or something. You know, they, they threatened me in this situation because trying to make good publicity for the government, you know? So it was really terrible. But to make it very short, I learned that they were lying. And I told them, and, and I told them, you know, you're forcing me to go back to Ecuador. They threatened me. So at least pay for me, you know, use the emergency fund that you have and pay. And they were like, you know, we cannot help you because it's like personal travel expenses. And they said, we can only help you for the internal travel in Japan, not for the international travel. So I was like, okay, so this is how we're gonna play. So they had this scheme, so they wouldn't let me use the money for the emergency to try to keep it for the sale. It's so <laughs> incredibly, how do you say? Um, I, cannot I cannot believe it when I remember these things, but that's how it works, you know? That's what was what, going on. So. To make the story short, I said, okay, you're not going to pay for my flight, no problem. Just make a compromise to pay my, uh, my, my terrain transportation within Japan. So please send me a letter with a compromise of payment to the person that's going to transport me. So they thought I was going to take like a cab to the train station and, you know, it was going to be like very cheap. But, <laughs> you know, I counter-schemed their scheme. And I took a calf and I took some people with me and we went from Sendai to Niigata across the, the, because we couldn't go through Tokyo, you know, I couldn't, I had to go to Osaka in order to get out of Japan at the time. You know, it was very hard at that moment. So, and, and it was impossible to go through Tokyo, impossible. Uh, and one of the reasons is that there was no gasoline at that point. You know, if you wanted to go from Sendai to Tokyo by car, uh, one of the problems is that there was not enough gasoline to do it. It was not possible to do it. So we went the other way from behind the, the other side of the island and took a calf, you know, Toyama and all these places and then went to Osaka. And I can only tell you that they were probably very surprised by the really high fee <laughs> of this, but it was a very interesting road trip. You know, you are, you are kind of like escaping Japan in the, in the, in the confusion of the earthquake and, and trying to get to Osaka 
And well, in the end, I could outplay, you know, the, the embassy and they ended up paying thousands of dollars in, in, in a taxi. <laughs> you know, in comparison to the plane ticket, it was like four or five times more expensive than a plane ticket. So I could uh, get away with that. And eventually, you know, I took actions against that. And, and actually many people from the, from the embassy lost their jobs, you know, and their positions because of, of what they did. So yes, definitely the worst part of my experience in the Japanese earthquake was dealing with Ecuadorian, with this uh, kind of like uh, unfortunate corruption that is very widespread in, in Ecuador and I think in South America in general. But eventually, all that happened, you know. Uh, in the other hand, uh, as I was telling you, I was very, very happy, well, not happy, but I was very pleasantly surprised with the reaction of the Japanese people to this catastrophe. I think that it was amazing, the solidarity uh, and the resilience that the, the Japanese people showed to this. It was really incredible, you know, really, really. When I think about it, it seems in, impossible because I cannot imagine uh, people being so kind to others, given their own personal tragedy, you know, but that was, that was like the, the spirit of, 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 of the people after the earthquake. Regarding, you know, how the government managed things, certain things, you know, I, I might not be uh, agree with that in, in some things, but the normal people, you know, like the common people, it was very surprising how, how well they responded to all, to everything. So that was kind of a little bit where we left off. And now maybe I can tell you what happened after I came, you know, back to Ecuador and, and what, how it was coming back to Ecuador, right? So um, one of the, another important thing uh, regarding, you know, like uh, my, that finishing my time in Japan was also uh, taking the Japanese examination, the JLPT. And, you know, that's also an interesting story because many times people who study Japanese have the JLPT exams like you know, to, to mark their progress. But I never took a JLPT exam until I took the level one exam. Uh, and that was like just a, a couple of weeks before I left Japan. So I was like, okay, if I'm gonna take the JLPT, I better do it now. Um, just a quick explanation for those who don't know the JLPT. I think there's four levels yeah. or something. Could you explain what are what's required for right. each one? Exactly, so the JLPT is the Japanese language proficiency test and it has five levels. Uh, N5 is the lowest, and then you keep going until N1, which is the highest. And, you know, it, it measures your ability a little bit to know the grammar, the words, and the kanjis. It's not very uh, good for speaking or for listening, really, although it does have a comprehension and reading comprehension as well. So I, I think it's, there's a few exams, but I think that the most um, useful one, the most globally accepted, uh, is the JLPT. So normally people like, you know, like you've been studying Japanese for maybe six months and then you try to go to level five, but then to go from level five to level four, it's kind of like the double. And then from level four to three is like kind of the double. So it's kind of an exponential growth. So normally level one is, even if you get level two, you know, maybe, maybe it takes a long, a few years to go to level two, but then going from two to one, it's going to take you like that amount of years again, kind of. That's kind of like the idea. But um, I never went to the trouble of taking the JLPT exams. And I just, before I left Japan, I say, I was, I'm gonna try it. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna try it. I'm gonna try the level one to see what happens. And 
And then I forgot I registered. <laughs> you know, I was too busy. And I remember like a couple of days before the exam and I had not studied and I had not prepared at all for the exam. Uh, but I went and I took it and I passed it. So that was great. That was really great. I know that um, many people have the JLPT like a very long term challenge. And for me, it was, I was very happy that for me, it was kind of like a casual thing to be able to, to approve it. And I was very happy. Um, I've heard that there's some native Japanese that struggle with that test as well. It like it's be, not that easy. Right. And the thing is that, um, level, you know, the JLPT level two, I think is very good because many of the, a lot of the content in the exam is useful, you know? So I think level two is great. But the problem with level one is that most of the new content is pretty useless. You know, it's things that you have to know, but then the chance that you're going to really use them or, or, or apply them ever is very, very low. So I think that most of the content in le the level one exam is really use, is, is useless. But I think maybe because of um, the need I had to read in Japanese, uh, for example, in in different aspects, for example, in the academic aspect, in the science and engineering in Japanese, and also uh, philosophy and religion and stuff in Japanese, I did have a pretty broad, um, how would you say, knowledge of grammar and expressions that, you know, that, so I think that helped me to be able to, to get through the level one exam. Of course, I didn't get like very high grading, but it was great to, to pass on the first attempt and without studying, so I'm very happy for that. So that was one of the interesting things that I could I could do before coming back. I was the only non-Asian in the room that day. There were like 250 people taking the exam and very and less than half pass. And it was very strange because I was the only person that maybe was not from a kanji culture to start with that passed the exam in that in that opportunity. So that was very that was very nice. That was like wow. Maybe I can speak Japanese. No, that, that raised my self-confidence a little. And the last thing, you know, before coming after my experience in Japan and coming back to Ecuador was um, getting equipment, enough equipment in order to be able to begin a group practice, kudo practice in Ecuador. So I was very, I was very uh, lucky to have, um, you know, since I practice in different dojo, I had a few friends and, 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 and people who knew me through Kudo practice in, in Sendai. And they were very kind to gather equipment for me so I could take back to Ecuador and start a group. But that was the first part, trying to gather the equipment. The second part was getting the equipment to Ecuador. And that was the beginning of what I still call the worst day of my life, which because what happens that the last day I was in Japan, I had to give back my apartment and then I had to go from Sendai to Tokyo and from Tokyo to Narita and then go to Ecuador, right? And the thing is that I was carrying with me two huge bags where I had my two big luggage. Uh, I had a backpack, a computer bag and a three meter long aluminum pipe that weighed like 50 kilograms. <laughs> And this huge three meter long, like thick aluminum pipe was filled with something like uh, around 15 Yumi and like a couple hundred arrows and like 10 Shinai and like six Bokuto. And it has some pieces of Bogu, like all my 
boot equipment I received in the donation was all stuffed in this huge kind of bazooka-like uh, pipe. <laughs> and the thing is that I had to go from Sendai to Tokyo in Shinkansen carrying all this by myself. Two bags, backpack, computer, and pipe uh, by myself. And you can imagine, you know, um, just just uh, how much space I was taking was very, you know, is you, you, I was very embarrassed. You know, I, I I know I'm taking too much luggage. I'm very sorry, uh, and I was like being like a, an obstacle in the train, and then transferring from the Shinkansen to the Narita Express inside the Tokyo Station, carrying all of this stuff in the summer heat, it was horrible. It was really horrible. So it was like take two bags return, carry this, return, you know, every, every 10 meters, I had to go back and forth like four times. It was a nightmare. And then getting this thing on the airplane was another nightmare, you know, like it was excess luggage. It was oversized luggage. It was extra luggage. It was extra costs everywhere, but eventually all this stuff got to Ecuador. So now in Ecuador, we have a lot of bows and arrows and yugakes for everybody. Uh, but yeah, it took a day that was a nightmare, you know, it was the, the last day in Japan, carrying all this stuff with the emotional luggage as well, you know, like leaving. So it was really tough. It was really tough. But I think that that's the kind of, of things that we have to do in order to, you know, to, to, to make opportunities for the future, no? So uh, then I had enough equipment and also the permission from my teachers in Sendai to to start teaching judo in, in Ecuador. You know, um, it was important for me as well uh, to get at least to Yondan before I came back to, to Ecuador because my, my teachers told me this, you know, like I think they, they kind of agreed in this is that if you want to practice judo by yourself and share this in, in Ecuador, you know, you, you need to progress at least to Yondan in order for us to be really uh, willing to to back up your, your decision. So um, that was possible. I actually did uh, get Yondan before um, before coming to Japan. Actually, I even tried, attempted my, my Godan in Japan as well before coming back. So, so yeah, that was also important. I had a, a little bit of pressure from my teachers uh, in order to get to a certain level for to get their support. So I could do that and I got the equipment. So that was like the two conditions that were necessary to begin uh, Kyudo practice here in Ecuador. So, so I came back to Ecuador and as I was telling you, is a, I think it's a good decision. Staying in Japan is an option. And actually I, I, I feel like I have the option to go to Japan anytime. You know, if I get fed up of Ecuador <laughs> for some reason, I feel like I have a opportunity to go to Japan anytime. Um, you know, not only because of my family relationships, you know, my, my wife is Japanese, so I can, you know, we can go to her, to her home anytime, uh, but also because I have professional and, and also other personal connections that, you know, I think I could be, I could make use in order to go back to establish myself in Japan. But for the time being, I really think that it was the best to, to come back to Ecuador, definitely. Uh, especially regarding martial arts. You know, one, I think that the biggest decision was, am I gonna stay here and keep practicing martial arts that I really love? Um, or 
and, and or go back to Ecuador and kind of refuse access to all these teachers, but you know, in exchange of what? But now that I have been here for a few years, maybe five years since I came back from Japan, I definitely think that coming back was the right answer uh, for my Budo. I think that coming back was the way to actually develop more in Budo because in certain way, I think I feel that when you stay in Japan, you are always a little bit infantilized somehow, you know, like you're always going to be the pupil. You're always going to be the younger one. You're going to be, oh, you're always going to be the foreigner, you know? And I think that it's important to actually have a change in these roles in order for you to be able to progress uh, past a certain point. So, yeah, I think that um, that was a, the right decision. Definitely. Yeah, there's probably that aspect of like everything being so easy and accessible. It's like if right. you have a baby and you're just spoon feeding them all the time, they're not going to want to pick up a spoon and try to eat themselves. So they don't learn that skill. So, yeah. Precisely. Yeah. So, so, and, and that's one of the, of the things that, you know, uh, trying to practice Kyudo here in Ecuador and starting to begin a group, um, it was very tough because the conditions are not very good. You know, Ecuador is a country where I think that the only physical activities or the only practices that are kind of like accepted involve a soccer ball. Like if there's no soccer ball, it's with, it's beyond the comprehension of, of most Ecuadorians, you know? <laughs> So things like, for example, support from a government or something like that for, for Budo is, it's impossible, you know? It's like you can propose a social development, personal development, and I think at the end of your presentation, they will just ask, and where is the soccer ball, you know? And it's kind of like this. So it's a, a culturally, a, we are not very used to the idea of martial arts beyond the sports aspect that it might have. So I think that it's, it's very hard to, to establish something like that. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode because we have a lot more exciting conversations to share as we explore the world of the traditional Japanese martial arts. The Inside Look podcast is made possible by our patrons over at Patreon. So if you enjoy this work and want them to continue, please consider supporting us for as little as a cup of coffee. There are many more ways for us to work together by connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada and subscribing to our monthly newsletter at subscribe.tokushikai.ca. Until next time, thanks for listening.